as I was looking at this passage through this last week, a question kept coming into my mind. Looking at the people of Israel, uh, listening to the exasperated voice of Ezra, uh, seeing the Lord's people, finding them finding themselves embroiled again and again in all the same problems and sins and difficulties. Uh, one question kept popping into my mind. Perhaps one day we'll all learn. <laughs> Perhaps one day we will. Well, please have that chapter open and let's just consider some things we can learn here. Well, First of all, Ezra, having not long arrived back in Jerusalem, discovers that things are not well. Indeed, he discovers that things are a good deal worse than he might have hoped they were. The people have not separated themselves from all the other peoples of the other nations, he's told. Some of them have taken daughters as wives. Some of them have taken sons as husbands. And this is a great trespass in God's sight. Now for those of you who aren't familiar with Old Testament uh, history and the story of the Old Testament and, and what it is that's actually being brought to Ezra's attention here, when you read this kind of thing in today's world and in the climate of today, people might immediately jump on the wrong bandwagon, wrong bandwagon thinking that this is some kind of racial or ethnic issue here. But it isn't. Not strictly speaking, it isn't. You read of some earlier in the Old Testament. Uh, there are men revered men in the Old Testament who had wives who were not of Jewish descent. Moses had a wife called Zipporah. She came from Midian. Boaz married Ruth. She came from Moab. But they were not like Solomon. When Moses took Zipporah and Boaz took Ruth, they were not ladies who brought with them all of the sin of their home nation. But for Solomon, it was a very different story. We read in 1 Kings chapter 11 about Solomon. He had many, he loved many foreign women. And the daughter of Pharaoh mentions all kinds of nations that they came from. The nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. But it's not a racial issue. This is the issue. Listen, they will turn away your hearts after their gods. It's a spiritual issue. It's got nothing to do with their race. It's got everything to do with the fact that these pagan nations worshipped the most abominable kind of idols. It's a worship, of course, which they'd invented for themselves. But Solomon, when he was old, 
we read, his wives turned his heart after other gods. That was the issue. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. That was the very thing that God had wanted to keep his people from. That's what the law was for. But Solomon fell for it as deep as any man has fallen for it. The conclusion, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, did not fully follow the Lord as his father David had. That was the issue. It's a spiritual issue, you see. So back in Exodus 34, we hear God speaking to his people. I'm making a covenant with you, an agreement with you. Now, if you're the Lord's this morning, you're under covenant with God too. He's made an agreement with you. It's not quite the same as in the Old Testament, but nevertheless, there are principles that still apply. Before all your people, I'll do marvels such as not been done in all the earth, nor in any, any nation, he says to Israel. All the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. Well, that's, we've just been hearing about that. That should certainly be true of us today. It's an awesome thing that I will do with you. Well, if you're a Christian, has God not done an awesome thing in your life that people should see? So the principles are the same. Observe what I command you this day. I'm driving out from before you all these peoples in these lands. Some of the same peoples that are mentioned here in, in Ezra and who are mentioned with Solomon in 1 Kings. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it be a snare in your midst. You shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images. You see, Pagan idolatry was rife in these nations. You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifices to their gods. And one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. It's a, it's a form of spiritual adultery. Gets repeated in Deuteronomy. Talking about when the Lord brings them into the land of Canaan that they're going to possess, the land that God has promised God's going to deliver them into that land. Make no covenant with them, Deuteronomy 7. Don't show them mercy. No marriages with them. Same things all again. They will turn your sons away from me to serve other gods. That's the reason why. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. When in the New Testament you read of us as being the saints in Christ, it means pretty much exactly the same thing. A holy people consecrated and set apart to God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. Well, we read that all the way through the New Testament, don't we? A special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord didn't set his love on you or choose you 
because you were more in number than any other people. You were the least of all peoples. He chose you because he loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. These pagan nations were just swamped in ungodly pagan worship. Detestable practices all around including, for example, sexual immorality as part of their worship and in some cases, even child sacrifice. The details of which I will spare you because it will put you off your lunch. Awful, awful things. And God introduces into that place his chosen special people. And they are to be consecrated to the Lord God, to the true and living God. They're to be a people who remain free from all of those sins. They're to be a people who are following God's ways. They're to be a people who are living as God has prescribed, not compromising with the world. These are the issues here. It's got nothing to do with racial purity and all of those kinds of things. It's all to do with spiritual purity. Those who would come in from other nations and repent of their sins and put their trust in the Lord God of Israel, they were welcome. They could join. Just as in that great story of Ruth with Naomi. Now, of course, these same themes and principles are found all through the New Testament for Christian believers, aren't they? were the saints of Christ, the children of God, his called out ones, separated to himself, to be distinct. And the issue is not about not having any kind of physical contact with the world. It's not about never having any kind of social interaction with people out there. No, well, actually, we're to go into the world but were to go into the world to be witnesses and ambassadors. But in doing so, we're not to be conformed to the world and we're not to be yoked or attached to the world in a way that compromises either our lives or our message. Clear, distinct, Christian living is the theme of so much of what Paul says in his letters, for example, so much of what Christ teaches us in the Gospels and is the same principle that God is operating amongst his Old Testament people in the land there. Because one who professes faith in God, one who professes faith in Christ, lives a certain way. So those first exiles have gone to Jerusalem, they've rebuilt the temple and they're worshipping there. But for some of them, it's not all of the people, but for some of them, including some key figures amongst them, they're not living the right way. They're turning up for worship every Lord's Day, but their lives are a mess. And this is why they need a man of the word like Ezra, to go back, to take the word of God back to them. You see, let's think of it like this. 
which would God be more pleased with amongst his Old Testament people? Right living with no temple or a temple accompanied by wrong living? You, you know the answer to that. Now, of course, actually what God wants them to have is the blessing of both of these things. He wants them to have the blessing of right worship accompanied by right living. But sin has crept in. And what Ezra shows us here is whenever sin is found, and especially when sin is found amongst those who are the professing people of God, and all of us will struggle with certain aspects of sin. But Ezra shows us it's not to be taken lightly. And it needs to be dealt with. And of course this particular sin which Ezra exposes as having happened here produces a particular astonishment. As he looks at the people and hears these reports and just cannot believe what he's hearing. Because what he sees in these people is lessons not learned. Lessons not learned. And we saw, didn't we, how he recalls to them uh, in verse 7, for example, we have been very guilty. All of our iniquities, our kings, our priests, well, we've just heard about King Solomon. There was loads like him afterwards, delivered into the hands of the kings. We as God's people, we have been judged and punished by God. Why? Because of our sin. And what was one of the main sins we were guilty of? It was breaking this very law of God that we, we've become just like everybody else when we're supposed to be separate and different. And we thought we knew better. And we thought, ah, oh, that's really not important, that part. And I can handle it. And none of us could. And we, we can so easily find ourselves with those same thoughts and feelings as the Lord's people today. This really isn't that big a deal, but with God it is. I can walk that tightrope and not fall off. No, you can't. All the things that we did is why we found ourselves in Babylon, the place we've just come from turning their backs on God and his law to compromise with sin. The very thing that brought God's judgment on them in the first place. One of the main things that resulted in exile in Babylon. And after just a few short years back in Jerusalem, they're at it all over again. And Ezra just cannot believe it. No wonder the Bible uses the word astonished. What are these people like? Well, maybe you're not so astonished, actually, as Ezra was. Maybe, actually, you recognise something of this in yourself as well. Maybe, actually, you're thinking this morning, well, do you know, I'm really not so different. Even amongst the, the Lord's people, the, the lure, the pull of sin can still be far stronger than we would ever care to admit. 
This is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul, for example, in his letters, brings so many strong exhortations that believers pay, atten pay attention, remain diligent in keeping yourself from those former sins from which you've been delivered and rescued in Christ. Such were some of you, but you're washed and sanctified and justified. But to those very same people, he has to keep on saying, flee from your sins. Keep turning away from them. Don't go back. Don't look over your shoulder. Be done with those things. And the exhortations keep coming and coming and coming through the pen of the apostle. Why? Because he knows it's an issue for every single one of us. If you can see yourself in these people, maybe today is the day to get it sorted. And in Ezra we see the proper response, a proper response. What do we see in Ezra? When I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe, which was kind of the, the ultimate symbol of, re of repentance and of grief before God. A, a true realisation of how severe sin is in God's eyes. Plucks out some of his hair, sits down astonished and just stays there for the rest of the day. There are others and they're on the same wavelength with Ezra and they come to him. They, they know, they understand, they can see it too. And he falls down before the Lord too ashamed even to lift up my face. And we can be so brazen in our sins. Too ashamed, humiliated before you, O oh Lord, even to lift up my face. That's where, that's where the response begins. I've got good news for you. It doesn't end there. But that's where it begins. On your face, before the Lord in complete humiliation. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. They've completely overtaken me, completely enveloped, enveloped me. My sin has completely overwhelmed me. It's got the better of me, Lord. And with sin comes guilt. And that guilt has reached the heavens and God is there. True guilt and true shame is where the proper response begins. But hang on, because it doesn't finish here. That's where it begins. Ezra's personal fasting for this time, just on his own before the Lord. The sins of individuals affects us all as well, you see. There's a corporate nature to this. The sins of some is going to have an impact on everybody. Our iniquities. Our iniquities. Ezra hasn't done this. Why is he praying like that? Because when you're in the body of Christ, when you're amongst the people of God, the sins of individuals has an effect on everybody. <coughs> Might not be obvious. But if you're harboring sin in your life, 
you're not in a good place with the Lord. And that's going to have an impact on an impact on how you serve and contribute and how God is prepared to use you within the life of his people and within the life of his church. It will, it will have an impact. It will make a difference. Our iniquities. And Ezra owns it. It isn't just their problem. It's our problem. It isn't just his issue. It's my issue too. And that, that sense of oneness within the family of God is a very important thing when dealing with sin. It isn't just about them or him or her. This is actually affecting us. The gravity of sin, it's higher than our heads. What it means before God. Our guilt has grown up to the heavens. So that's where the response must begin. We learn from this, don't allow God's grace to make you go soft on sin. Don't allow God's grace to make you go soft on sin. This is another theme that the Apostle Paul had to deal with from time to time. Ezra acknowledges the grace that has been shown to them in verses 8 and 9 and in verses 13 and 14. For a little while grace has been shown to us. God hasn't destroyed all of us. The whole nation deserved to be destroyed, but he hasn't. He's left a remnant. He's left some who will continue to know him and love him and serve him. We were slaves, but God did not forsake us in our bondage. He's extended mercy to us and brought us back. There's been grace and mercy here. You, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Mercy and grace in God. It's right that as believers, you should have full assurance of your salvation. And it's right that as a believer, you should make much of God's grace. But don't allow that to let you go soft on sin. It's true that you're fully justified now before God in Christ and that there is nothing that can change that ever. And it's true that that is through no merit of your own. But don't allow that to let you go soft on sin. It's true that in Christ the old has gone and the new has come and that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But don't let that allow you to go soft on sin. That was their mistake. You can open up your Bible and learn. Oh, that the Lord would help us to learn from his people of old. Don't suppose that sin doesn't matter anymore now that you're saved. And because of grace should actually make us even more keen to make the difference count. And finally, what I want to point out from this passage is that Ezra's kind of assessment of everything is correct. 
but God still extends grace. Ezra is correct, but God still extends grace. The chapter concludes with these words, O Lord, you are righteous. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. And Ezra's correct, but what Ezra could not see, as you can see it this morning, is that in Christ there is still a way back to God from that dark path of sin for you. If you know that that's where you are this morning. What Ezra sees at verse 15 is the true sinfulness of sin. What Ezra sees at verse 15 is the full extent of sin. What Ezra sees in verse 15 are the dire consequences that our sins should bring upon us. That we cannot stand before God. That it is all up for us. We are totally undone. And that is the end for all of us now. Because of sin. But here's the good news. God's grace goes on. And all of that sin, even all of that sin, has been laid on Christ for you. That you might know God's forgiveness. And so, right towards the end of the New Testament, when the Apostle John is writing to Christian believers, he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer. You may or may not be a member of the church, this local church, but you're a believer. And maybe if your current sins were laid before us, we'd be, as, we'd be as astonished as Ezra was. And if that's the case, then your sins are the dire offence before the Lord that Ezra supposed them to be. They are. But I've got good news for you this morning through the Lord Jesus Christ. God still offers grace to those who will truly repent. And even now, all may be well with your soul. And we need to get a grasp of this. And you know, in the days ahead, we need to get an even firmer grasp of this and we need to hold on more and more tightly to this because this is going to become more and more of an issue for us in the United Kingdom and in the Western world as the direction that our society is taking continues. You are God's chosen special people. You need to understand that like you've never understood it before. You are his holy, royal nation. You're going to have to hold on to that tighter than you've ever held on to it before.
You are his saints, his witnesses, his ambassadors, his light in this dark world. Separated to him, consecrated to him, holy to him, because he is holy. With the Bible open, let us understand who in God we are and what in God we must be. And by his grace and with his help, let us learn. Jesus, I have promised to serve you to the end. Be thou forever near me, my master and my friend. I shall not fear the battle if thou art by my side, nor wander from the pathway if thou wilt be my guide. Let me feel thee near me. The world is ever near. I see the sights that dazzle, the tempting sounds I hear. My foes are ever near me, around me and within. But Jesus, draw thou nearer, shield my soul from sin. Let me hear you speaking in accents clear and still. Above the storms of passion, the murmurs of self-will. Speak to reassure me, to hasten, to control. Speak and make me listen, thou guardian of my soul. If you mean it, sing it. Our Lord and our God, you have loved us and chosen us and called us. You have changed us and remade us. Oh Lord, keep us and guide us for your own. For Christ's sake and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.